It's time for episode 124 of the Clockwise Podcast from Relay FM, recorded Wednesday, February 17th, 2016. Clockwise, four people, four technology topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise, the podcast where time is money. I am Jason Snell, and across the internet from me, my co-host, Dan Morin. Pay up, Dan. Is is time money? It turns out. Let's really break this down. Let's Einstein this proved academically that that uh, neither time nor money can be destroyed, only transmuted into the other. I believe is how that works. Oh, well, <laughs> uh, we always this is clockwise. We talk about four technology topics in thirty minutes, and we always welcome two excellent guests. To my left, tech editor at Refinery Twenty Nine, Christina Bonington. Welcome back. Hello. And to my left, the co-host of Mac Power Users, right here on Relay FM, Mr. David Sparks. Hi, David. Hey, Dan. Welcome back. Happy to be back. All right. We've got uh, 30 minutes for four topics, so we might as well get started. I'll go first. I had a, This is kind of an off-the-wall question that I wanted to ask, but I was thinking about this. My son is 11 years old, and um, up until the point where he was born, I still made a great effort to edit like uh, video clips, my home movies, into like uh, these edited movies in iMovie with, with soundtracks and, and just the best stuff, and I would output them and burn them on DVDs and things like that. And... Uh, Basically, at the moment of his birth, uh, having two children, I gave up, and I have unedited footage, and that's it. And then lately, all I ever do when I even shoot video is um, maybe share it on Facebook or something like that so other members of the family can see it, and that's about it. So I was wondering, there was a period where editing, where taking home videos, personal videos, and editing them was a thing. Um, for me, that, that it's not a thing anymore. And I was just curious, do you take personal videos? And if you do, do you do anything with them other than maybe share them on social media? I'm curious how you all are using video as opposed to photos in terms of uh, processing, sharing, keeping, um, or maybe maybe you take them and never watch them again, which would be an interesting workflow too. Uh, Christina, what about you? How do you use videos? You know, I don't take a ton of videos, but when I do, it's usually just short clips, maybe somewhere between like three and 15 seconds. So I'll usually share it on Facebook or Instagram, um, or I might Snapchat a little bit. Um, but yeah, I don't take a lot of long video that needs a lot of editing, uh, very often. Um, one app that I use for editing, I, I think it was called Spark and that was, um, I've used that on the iPhone and the iPad, but, um, but yeah, in terms of, I don't really have much like home movie footage or anything like that. You know, um, I can sum up most of my cat's, you know, activities in about six seconds or so. So I just stick with, you know, sharing on social media. Yeah. I don't, I don't also, I also don't take a lot of video. There was a time probably where I took more and back in college, I was actually doing like some, you know, minor film editing projects. So in those cases, yeah, yeah, you spend some time editing it, but for, for a lot of other stuff for the stuff these days, even though, you know, the iPhone is an incredibly capable video camera and can take high def video, I I really don't find myself doing it that much. And probably in part because I have no children or pets. So, you know, I'm not that interesting. So the few clips that every once in a while I take might get posted on social media or, you know what, Jason, sometimes they just never get watched again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's not quite. I, then again, I also take a lot of photos I don't go back and look at. So, you know, I think it's just you want to capture that moment. But finding, you know, time to go back and look at all those things sometimes seems like, oh, well, you know, hey, it's there if I ever need it. But it turns out I don't need it that much. Maybe that will change someday. But for the moment, 
yeah, not much, not much activity there. Yeah, I used to do the same thing, uh, Jason, because I have kids too, and especially when they're little and really cute, it's so fun to take videos of them. And you know, I I was uh, into iMovie, used iMovie to make lots of clips. Three minute rule, by the way, if you ever make home movies, never make it longer than three minutes, uh, or you just make yep. everybody really bored. Yep. <laughs> uh, but the thing I find is my kids now are older. You know, one of them's in college, and they love, 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 love going back and watching the videos of them being cute little kids. So, if you do have kids, you probably should be doing it. And, um, but no, currently, my kids aren't cute, so now I just save the videos <laughs> to the photos <laughs> database. You know, they're they're old. You know, they're old people now, so it's not as yeah, fun. Boring. Yeah, I, I, um, my daughter really loves, uh, and my son too, but she's the one who really pushes it. Likes watching the old home movies of when when they were little, and I, I kind of wish that that I had uh, been able to keep on my editing game when my son was born for a little bit, just because that would give them more, and that would give him video more videos of himself as a baby to watch than than he's got. Um, and I just keep saying, is it going to be like, am I going to be a retired person editing videos of my children when they were? babies in order to show it at what like their weddings or something i don't know it's um video is hard um i've seen some services that try including google photos i think that tries to take videos and kind of algorithmically make uh video uh you know video montages and things like that but i think the bottom line is that you know it's it's a lot of work it's it's a lot of work and maybe too much work so like i said for me i end up taking short video clips and doing things like posting them on facebook for my family to see and that's about it and maybe that's okay. Uh, let's move on to our next topic. Uh, I think this is going to be a little more about audio than video. Christina, what do you have for us? Yeah. So this week, um, the music app title made it to the title made it to the number one spot in the app store. Um, if you don't recall, Tidal is a music streaming service that costs $20 a month, and it's backed by, uh, it was founded by Jay-Z and backed by a bunch of uh, musicians like Madonna and Kanye West and, uh, uh, you know, top 40 artists along those lines. Um, um, but so Kanye released his latest album on it, his seventh album, and it shot up to the number one spot in the App Store. Um and I'm wondering, do you guys think this app is ever going to, you know, become, you know, a Spotify competitor? Is it actually going to make a dent in most people's, you know, music streaming habits? Or do you think it's just, you know, making a blip here and there whenever uh, artists like Kanye or Rihanna release an exclusive album on the platform? Yeah, I it's a it's a competitive area right now what with Spotify and Apple Music. And I don't know, I, I would feel like... They certainly have something going for them in terms of, you know, content that pops up there that that may not be accessible easily elsewhere or uh, elsewhere at all. And so for people who are fans of those artists, and if that's the only option, well, they it might draw some attention. But I would also worry about people. There's still, a, you know, pretty big music piracy out there. So that may not draw quite as much uh, paying attention as they like. But at the same time, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm maybe not the best judge of this. I don't use any of the streaming music services, or at least I don't pay for any of the streaming music services. I use the free Spotify tier occasionally, uh, but most of the stuff I listen to is from my own library, and I, I still tend to buy albums here and there. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly uh, the kind of artists that are showing up on Tidal have a lot of clout and huge followings, which is something that could draw a lot of attention there. Um, but if it ends up being kind of just a segmented like, hey, this is where you get these artists, but not much else or, 
you know, there are other artists who are missing from those services that are available in other services. I don't think people want to get into a situation of having to pay $10 a month for like three different services just to, to get all their favorite music. So uh, I, I imagine they, we, we might see them sort of subsumed into one of the larger ones or, or just that, that venture given up entirely. But uh, I think we'll have to wait and see. I'm I'm so glad Christina asked this question because just last night I had dinner with my 19-year-old who is my uh, market uh, study for that age group. <laughs> and, and if there was a church of Beyonce, she would belong to it. Um, so I was asking her about Tidal and she's like, oh, no, that's way too expensive. I don't want to do Tidal. And, then, and, then, and, and she, she also likes a lot of independent artists and she says, Tidal is just to make the really rich artist rich. It doesn't really help anybody else. So it's, it's interesting to me that to a teenager, Tidal really isn't that hip. And um, I don't know how long it's going to work for them. But uh, for me, I, I signed up for the Apple Music. I know a lot of people uh, has its detractors, but I think it works pretty great for me. And I like a lot of obscure music and most of the stuff I like is there. The one thing I really don't like about Apple Music is the recommendations for me are terrible. And I think it's because for years we used one account for the whole family. <laughs> so it keeps yeah. throwing like Miley Cyrus at me and stuff that I would never oh, no. listen to. And no matter how often I tell it, I don't like it. It shows up again. It's mocking me every day. But other than that, it's fine. Yeah, I, I think Tidal is interesting because it is the, it pitched as this kind of artist. Uh, it's by the artists for the artists, although you know it's not. It's it's a uh, they've got investment and it's a money uh, it's a money maker and it is the big artists who are sort of driving it. And I think I might trust them more than I trust the record companies, but I'm not sure I trust them more than I would trust one of the other streaming services because I f- feel like the streaming services aren't the record companies. It's a it's a different kind of relationship. I also I hate exclusives that force people to and I know why the services do it but I always hated service exclusives the fact that you you know if you want to watch a football game on a on a, a cell phone it has to be on Verizon because there's an exclusive deal there and if you have an iPad you can watch you can watch the, the game on another another network but not if you have an iPhone it has to be Verizon and uh, you know if you want to watch this particular show you have to you have to you know you have to get Netflix or this one you have to get Amazon I get it I get why that happens but there is a point where you think with all these competing exclusives, basically fans have to choose because it's unlikely that you're going to subscribe to three streaming services in order to get all the stuff. You're you're basically being forced to choose. It's certainly unlikely that you're going to like subscribe to cable and satellite TV simultaneously in order to get all the features, right? And that's the problem with it is the competition is fine, but um, but but that's my frustration. It's like Kanye saying, uh, you know, you can only get it here, but what if you also like Taylor Swift and they've got the exclusive stuff for that on Apple Music and now people have to choose. Also, exclusives seem to just throw it back in the realm of piracy where uh, Kanye can believe that his album is only on Tidal, but the fact is it's only on Tidal and BitTorrent. So is that better? Um, I don't know. I don't know. So I, I don't I don't love that. I, Tidal sounds like a perfectly fine service. I, I've kind of been turned off because they have that hi-fi version that's for more money that almost nobody, if anybody, can tell the difference in quality, but they're charging more for it. And that, that has the whiff of Neil Young snake oil around it. But, um, <laughs> you know, anyway, I wish I wish them luck, but um, I, I hate the exclusive game and I wish it would stop. Yeah, I agree. I, I hate the exclusive game as well. And, and yeah, his album is being pirated like crazy because he only released it on Tidal. If he'd also simultaneously released it on on Apple Music and on Spotify, he'd probably be making more money than he is by just releasing it on Tidal. Or just for sale on iTunes yeah, or something, yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. Kanye. Kanye does what he wants. <laughs> what can you say? 
All right, two topics down. We've got two more to go. It's halftime. I want to tell you about our halftime sponsor. It's Squarespace. It's our buddies at Squarespace. Start building your website today, squarespace.com. You can use an offer code that is very delightful. It is clockwise. Use that at checkout and you'll get 10% off of Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Now, when it comes time for you to give yourself a place online, Squarespace is the place to go. You, you've you heard about it. I, I would like to think that when you think, hey, I need to make a website, what you're going to say is, I could use Squarespace for that. They put all the power you need in your hands. Uh, you take away all all the pain points. You don't have to worry about getting a web host. You don't have to worry about scaling. You've got everything when you sign up for Squarespace. They have professionally designed templates that you can use that are beautiful. They look great on mobile. They look great on the desktop. They look great on laptops and tablets. So the uh, you'll you'll have a, a site that's designed by a professional without having to hire a design professional. And you don't need to know how to code either. The tools they use are very easy. You can customize your site to look exactly like you want. It's got the state-of-the-art technology in the background powering your site, but you don't have to install it. You don't have to run it. You don't need to hire a sysadmin to do that or even know what the word sysadmin means, quite frankly. Uh, there's 24-7 support. So if you have trouble, they have live chat and email support that are located all over the world. You can sell things on Squarespace. Everybody, when you sign up with Squarespace, gets the ability to add a store to your Squarespace site. So if you want to sell a product on the internet, you can do that right from your Squarespace site. You don't have to go out and find an e-commerce plugin and integrate it and sign up for another service. It's all part of Squarespace. Uh, they have the cover page feature, so if you've got an event or you're trying to have a place where people can go to find out who you are, you can build a great-looking single-page website, and that's called the cover page. And you know, you can say, just go to myparty.com. Don't go to actually myparty.com. Uh, myparty.zone, let's say, and they'll find out about your party. Uh, they, the, the hosting is solid and uh, state-of-the-art. So you know, really, it's all in one package. And the thing is, it starts at eight dollars a month. It's pretty crazy. So you get all of that for a very low price and if you sign up for a whole year in advance you get a free domain name it could be that crazy one that i said earlier or something else you can choose what it wants to be called so start up at squarespace today no credit card required uh, you go to squarespace.com and when you choose to sign up use that offer code clockwise and you'll get 10 percent off your first purchase and show your support for this show thank you to squarespace for being the halftime sponsor of clockwise and i just want to remind you squarespace you should dan you should do your topic now. I'm going to do my topic. Thank you. Uh, Tim Cook, CEO of Apple. We all know him personally, I'm sure, right? Everybody's met him at least five or six times. Um, he came out with a strongly worded letter on Apple's site uh, this week saying that Apple has been asked by the FBI to essentially hack into the iPhone software, therefore, therefore you know, bypassing encryption so that the FBI can retrieve information specifically related to the case of the San Bernardino case. Uh, Tim Cook thinks this will be a major problem because it sort of opens the door to these requests being used in the future and possibly opens up this technology to being abused by not only the government, but by malicious actors like criminals as well. So out of curiosity... Where do you guys come down on this? Do you think Apple should be assisting the national security slash law enforcement apparatus? Or do you think that Tim Cook is right that this is a, uh, a possible serious privacy violation? And I'll turn it over to our good friend and legal expert, Mr. Sparks. <laughs> yeah. Boy, I just walked into that one, didn't I? Yep. Yeah, I, I don't. So I don't practice law with respect to this type of stuff. So I don't know any of the legal stuff. But I will say that personally, I, I, I believe in the right of privacy. And it feels to me like it's eroded greatly in this generation and, and going to in the future generation, because it seems like nobody even really cares that much. But as soon as they put a door 
into my phone to my data. Uh, it feels to me like just about anybody that really wants to can get through that door. It's not going to be just the government. And uh, I actually kind of have a problem with it. You know, I, I like the idea of protecting my privacy. I, I was thinking if I if my dad were alive, he was a Korean War vet, and if I told him, okay, there's this new thing where the government is going to go in your mailbox every day and take out your mail and make a copy of it and put it in a room, and they're going to really keep it in that room. They're not going to read it unless they really, really need to, but they're going to copy all your mail, and then they'll put it back in your mailbox. And uh, what would you think of that? And I think he would like go buy ammo. I mean, you know, and and but that's going on, and and I uh, I don't like it, and uh, I understand. And if like I know if I was a family of one of the victims of that San Bernardino shooting, uh, I would want them to do whatever they can. But I just I just don't feel like we need to all just surrender all our privacy rights that easily. So that's that's just my idea. Yeah, I um, I agree. I think the the government. Uh, there's also this talk about like building in a back door, as if the government would only be the ones that ever had access to it, and it wouldn't be. First off, it wouldn't be like national security. There's the there's the slippery slope within the government where it ends up being your local sheriff has the ability to read your email because that that trickles down in law enforcement, and then of course the bad people will also have access to that back door if they can figure it out. However, I will say there is nuance to this story, and I think it's a little bit troubling. Um, what what they're really trying to do is get Apple to do a modified version of iOS that they can install on the one of the shooter's uh, iPhones so that it circumvents the, uh, the the system that makes it more difficult to uh, constantly enter in a password and not wipe the phone after a certain number of password attempts because that's not part, that's not encrypted. That's something Apple could change in a software update. And um, Apple's resistance here, I think, is good, but on a practical level, I would also say um, maybe it's it's uh, they're they're pushing this a little bit too far. That I could sort of see the argument for what if we brought the phone to Cupertino and in a lab they installed a one-time software change that allowed the FBI to unlock that phone and get the data off of it. Um, I, I, I there is some you you potentially open some danger there, but you also potentially nip this in the bud in a way because uh, what is not I think widely reported yet is that on phones this is an iPhone 5C on phones from the 5S forward. Um, you can't actually use this method because it uses the secure enclave that comes with Touch ID as one of the points in generating that secure code. And as a result, uh, the secure enclave has built into it these big time delays that basically make overriding and brute force uh, unlocking a phone uh, essentially impossible. So Apple's actually already stepped this up, but this phone is less secure. So I don't know. Part of me, part of me thinks, and Ben Thompson wrote a really great piece about this uh, for Stratechery. Um, Part of me thinks that maybe Apple should not be drawing the line quite here because Apple has already gone past this. And the danger is that Apple is going to get in a, a position where the government is going to force them to make huge changes and they're going to lose their argument. But um, in general, though, I, I agree with David. This is bad. Um, backdoors and encryption and breaking encryption. I know that the government wants to protect us, but but this is there are other ways for the government to protect us. And this opens the door to surveillance and criminal activity. Yeah, I definitely agree with with you and David as well. Um, I, I'm I think it's really great that Tim Cook and Apple are are speaking out so openly in favor of encryption and um, against you know making this exception in this case. Um, if you make an exception one time, you know then the government's just going to keep coming back and asking you to do it over and over again. Other governments are going to join in. You know I don't feel like 
our government is quite as, you know, tech, I, I don't know. I don't feel like our government is quite as tech savvy as like I would like to think that they are. And so I just feel like if they had access to an encryption key, it would, it would be found out by, you know, bad people like so quickly and we just wouldn't have any privacy at all. And, you know, I like to think out, you know, I'm one of those, I'm like, oh, you know, I don't have anything to hide on my phone, but I also like to know that, you know, it's, it's mine, it's on my phone and, um, it's up to me to decide when I want to share, you know, photos or emails or whatever, and when I keep it private. And I think it's important that, we as citizens are able to maintain some level of, of privacy with our digital lives. And um, yeah, I agree. I feel like in the past, you know, few years in particular, that privacy has just been eroding at a really great scale. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad that Apple is standing up against this and I hope that they're able to hold it up, you know, as this case, you know, moves forward. Yeah. Surprising no one. I'm going to agree with most of you on this and say that this is this is a great move. Now, there's a lot of different arguments that get conflated here, which is part of the problem. There's the legal issue. And I think that's sort of the bigger thing that Tim Cook is stepping into here saying, look, you know, this we're worried about this establishing a precedent. Like you said, even if Apple did decide to help them out this one time, that potentially gives more ammunition for more requests down the road. And even if the newer versions of the iPhones are more secure, it doesn't mean they can't be circumvented or that Apple wouldn't have to try and find some way to circumvent them if they established a precedent of helping law enforcement in that way. Uh, it's also possible that this phone could be uh, accessed without Apple's help. There are security holes and vulnerabilities. They're the kinds of things that security researchers look for all the time, and there's nothing saying that they couldn't find some way around Apple to get access to this phone here. There's also the issue that, you know, this person also had an iCloud backup, and if anybody has an iCloud backup, should also note those are not encrypted. <laughs> so there's other information that law enforcement can use to get much of the same data that they're trying to get from this. So it's a very thorny issue and it does feel like maybe this is you know more of a uh not quite a poster child but you know a sort of an example for how are we going to deal with this but the biggest fear for me comes from you know the lack of understanding as i think christina said from our our politicians and our government officials about just what is implied here because you know you start compromising things with uh with privacy and it, it gets slippery very quickly uh, my cardinal rule of technology has always been never bet against the hackers. And as soon as you open up a, a vulnerability like this or some way to circumvent security restrictions, the wrong people are going to find it. That's what they do. That's what they get you know, their money from. That's how they make their living. That's, that's their goal. Uh, so I think that that's a very bad trade-off. Uh, and more yeah. to the point, the people who are security people or who are using these kinds of things to circumvent law enforcement and national security are going to find other ways to do that. So honestly, it really only hurts us in the end. But thank you all for your, your feelings on that. And we'll go on to our fourth topic from David. So we got the new iPad Pro. It's been out a couple months now, and there seems to be a lot of talk in the community about iPad versus MacBook. And uh, my question to you is, are you on Team MacBook or Team iPad? Uh, I'm I'm on Team both. All right. I have an iPad Pro, and I use it, and I like it, but there are things that it can't do. And I, I, I've mentioned this on podcasts before. I, I have an iMac at my desk, and that is my work mode. And when I'm you know doing my job every day, it's generally on the, iPad, on the iMac at my desk. 
However, when I'm traveling, I prefer to use the iPad. I can't always be iPad only because I can't really, I don't really have a podcast recording solution on the iPad. So I have to bring my laptop with me. When I was traveling this weekend, I had to bring the laptop with me just for uh, podcast recording. I could probably do most of my job on the iPad if I really wanted to, but I really like being able to, to do my job on either and then just sort of choose when I want to be using one and when I want the other. Yeah, I'd have to say I'm still kind of team MacBook. I'm actually, I'm still like super holding out for like the MacBook Air with the with the retina screen. Um, but yeah, for me, I'm just, um, I feel like I can just do everything so much faster on, on the MacBook. Um, just I've tried, you know, some third party keyboards and different keyboards with iPads and just my hands are just so used to the ones on on the MacBook Air that I can type very, very quickly without, you know, looking at the keys at all. And, you know, for something like a live blog or, you know, if I'm taking notes in a meeting or something, it's just super handy not to, you know, be able to think about, you know, am I typing gibberish or am I typing what this person is saying right now? And, um, and then actually though, um, I have more and more instead of an iPad. I just, I can use my iPhone for kind of, you know, mobile work. Um, You know, I have Slack on my iPhone, email. Um, I can take notes and take audio very easily. Um, So if, you know, if I'm away from the office, which is actually my home, um, then I, you know, I can do, get a lot of work done just on my phone. And that's even more convenient than whipping out an iPad, um, except for the lack of screen real estate. Yeah. Like Jason, I'm on team both here. My MacBook is still my work machine, but my iPad is my sort of like kicking back on the couch, uh, surfing the web, doing a lot of stuff when I'm not at the desk machine. And I, right now, having been lucky enough to have both, I don't feel particularly like one of them is superior to the other. They both have different use cases for me. Um, so I, I certainly don't see my iPad as a replacement for my MacBook, but it's nice to know if I don't have my MacBook, I can get most of the stuff done that I want to on my iPad. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to swap one out for the other at the moment as long as I can sort of continue to have both. You're not going to take either of them away from me, right, David? No, that's a that's a different show. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it, the, the question was kind of a setup, really, and, and you guys didn't take the bait. It, Objection, I counselor. <laughs> I agree. I agree. You know, it, it, they, the, there's a place for both of these things, but it seems like in the press and the podcast circuit, everybody has to say you got to be on one team or the other. Well, why not be on both teams? I mean, they really aren't that expensive in the overall scheme of things, and if you can get good work done with both of them. Uh, you should not be afraid to use both. I, I uh, Since I got the iPad Pro, it has really upped my game for the ability to do work on an iPad because it, it really is quite a machine. And some of the software, the traditional productivity software, I mean, Microsoft Word being one of the ones, is, in my opinion, superior on the iPad now. So uh, it's definitely a machine you can get a lot of work done on, but there's no reason why you can't use both. All right. I think we have reached uh, the end of our four topics. Thanks to everybody. And uh, we have just time for a bonus topic. Uh, the bonus topic this week on Clockwise is brought to you by Casper, online retailer of premium mattresses you can get for a fraction of the price you'll find in stores. Now, as you know, mattress industry has inherently forced consumers into paying high prices. And of course, you just lay down the mattress in the mattress store and you have no idea if it's going to feel like that when, when you get at home. Casper is different. It's a different kind of mattress. It's a hybrid of latex foam and memory foam. It feels really nice. It's got it's got support as well as a really pleasant kind of sink to it, um, but it's also different in the way that you order it. You order it online; it comes shipped to you, shrink wrapped in a box. You open it up, and it expands into a full size mattress, and then you can try it for a hundred days. 
uh, risk-free. And if you don't like it, you just send it back and they give you your money back. It's pretty great. So the uh, prices are good. Uh, often mattresses can cost a whole lot of money, um, maybe even over $1,500. Casper mattresses start at 500 for a twin, 750 for a full, 850 queen, and 950 for a king-sized mattress. And they're all made in the USA. So don't lie on a bed in a showroom for four minutes and make a decision that will impact your sleep for years. Instead, give Casper a try. You can get $50 toward any purchase of a Casper mattress by going to casper.com slash clockwise and using the code clockwise. Terms and conditions apply. Thanks to Casper for being our bonus topic sponsor. And this is the bonus topic really quickly, everybody. I just went to a Doctor Who convention this weekend in Los Angeles, saw a lot of my friends. It was really great. And it put me in the mind of uh, time and space. So I ask all of you, if you had the ability to step into a time and space machine of some sort and travel anywhere in time and space, what would that one trip be? Where would you go? Christina? Ooh. Well, I've been watching um, uh, Star Trek Next Generation um, on Netflix for a second time. And so I feel like I would want to go into the future. I, I don't have an exact time and date, but basically like if the Enterprise were real, like that's that's when I, oh, I guess there's 22, I, I forgot what year it takes place in. Bridge of the Enterprise. That's a good answer. Dan? Can I go to a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away? <laughs> uh, no. That's, you said anywhere in time and space. Okay, yes, then you, you can. You can go All into right. the land of fiction. Congratulations. That, that's where I'm going. Wow, you guys with your fiction. David, are you going someplace real or are you going to fictional worlds? Dan took my pick, I have to say. <laughs> so. so I think what I would do is I would go to Gallifrey and get my own TARDIS so I could have unlimited time and space travel. Uh, you know, you're not supposed to wish for more We're wishes. all cheaters. I don't We're know. I want to go to some big historical event where people don't know a lot about it. So while I uh, listening to Hamilton makes me want to go back to the American Revolution, I'm going to go back to some sort of prehistory, like you know maybe the Ides of March when uh, Julius Caesar was assassinated. I, I, I'd like that. All right, that's it. We're done. Um, uh, it's just time for us to thank our guests for being here. Christina Bonington, thank you so much for being back on Clockwise. It was great talking to you. Woo, thanks for having me. And David Sparks, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, as always. All right, Dan, uh, we'll be back next week, of course, won't we? Indeed, with some other time and space travel, I'm sure. Yes, we will travel forward seven days in time and space and do another episode of Clockwise. But until then, we remind all of you who are traveling the slower path to watch what you say. And keep watching the clock. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.